you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It's on page 836 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Mark 1, 1 through 8. He's arguably the most famous person in history. Over two billion people claim to follow him. That's one-third of the world's population. Uh, He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure, in fact. Uh, Time magazine called him the most influential person who ever lived. But who is Jesus? Some don't believe that he ever existed. Others think that he was an egomaniac. And lots of people believe that he was just a good man. Some believe that he was a cool dude who gave good advice. And others believe that he was the son of God. He was a Galilean carpenter who was born in Bethlehem, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And yet, we're still talking about him today. People like the Beatles and even Tiger Woods have argued or engaged their popularity as more famous than Jesus Christ. So whatever you do with him, you can't deny that he was something special. He impacted history like no one ever has. As the title of Josh McDowell's book says, He's more than a carpenter. Who is Jesus? How do we even begin to answer that question? Well, people get excited about things like the Shroud of Turin, which is supposedly the burial shroud in which Jesus was wrapped. Uh, If I were to have that item here today, we'd probably have hundreds or thousands of people here to see it. But... Carbon dating showed that the shroud came from the Middle Ages between the years 1260 and 1390. So while people get excited about things like the shroud, the best place to answer the question, who is Jesus, is not in a shroud. It's in historical evidence. Jesus of Nazareth walked the streets of Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. But is there even evidence that he existed? Yes. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. Uh, The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus after the Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence from outside the Bible that Jesus existed. But most of our evidence comes from inside the New Testament. And I want to suggest that this is a good thing. Uh, The gospel accounts that we have uh, of Jesus in the New Testament make extensive use of eyewitness testimony. Uh, These aren't just neutral, distant, third-hand accounts. They're accounts from people who were actually there, people who walked with Jesus, 
talked with Jesus, saw him do miracles, saw him love people, saw him die on a cross and rise from the dead. These were active participants in Jesus' life. When it comes to history, I want to suggest to us this morning that the documents we have in the Gospels are grade A. When looking at other historical events, say something like the Peloponnesian Wars, we don't have near the amount of evidence that we have in the Gospels. And yet, no one doubts that the Peloponnesian Wars happened the way that the history books say they do. There's no reason to doubt that. If you even have a half a day to study the textual, historic evidence for the Gospels, you'd be overwhelmed at just how much we have and how good those documents are. So, how do we answer the question, who is Jesus? Adfantis. It's a Latin term meaning back to the sources. We believe that the best source for answering the question, who is Jesus, is the Bible. And over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be digging into the first part or the first section of the first act of the Gospel of Mark. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament or the Bible, we actually have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The first three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Because they're writing from a common source, which most scholars actually believe is Mark, which is the first written. John, on the other hand, is the most theological of the four, taking historical truth and kind of arranging it in such a way as to lead us to belief. Each of the the four Gospels tell us the story of Jesus, but what we're going to be seeing is that they do it in their own ways. Uh, Matthew seems to be writing to a Jewish audience, and and therefore he goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the Jewish Messiah. Luke, on the other hand, tells the same story with the same historical facts, but he highlights Jesus' humanity, and he shows him to be for the least and the lowest in society. Each gospel has characteristics to how they write, And Mark is no different. Uh, Mark was written by a guy named John Mark, who traveled with Paul the Apostle and Barnabas in in their early missionary days. We know from the book of Acts that John Mark was actually fired by Paul and then reconciled to him later in life. Most importantly, we believe that, that Mark got his information from the Apostle Peter, who Mark served as a secretary. In fact, if you go read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, uh, the structure of Peter's sermon there in Acts 10 is almost identical to the structure of the Gospel of Mark. So a couple of things I want us to keep in mind as we study Mark. Number one, Mark was the first Gospel written. Uh, Most scholars believe that Mark was the first one ever to even write this kind of genre, which is called gospel. Uh, Mark, second, Mark moves quickly. 
Uh, it's the shortest gospel, but it also moves at a fast and rapid pace. You're going to see, especially at the first half of the book, the words, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, over and over and over again. He seems to want to wanna get us somewhere quick. He doesn't waste much time beating around the bush. In fact, Mark has the smallest amount of actual teaching of any of the Gospels. Instead, he seems more concerned to give us the major facts of Jesus' life and his ministry. Third, Mark is known, as you heard a little bit in the video, Mark is known for highlighting the blindness of the disciples. Uh, We'll see time and time again how the disciples just whiff, uh, that they don't seem to get it. And I find this oddly encouraging uh, as uh, an often visually challenged disciple myself. Fourth, um, and finally, Mark isn't just a a biography uh, or a chronological account of Jesus. Uh, It's meant to be a witness document or something kind of like a tract that that someone would hand out to give a summary of the significant work of Jesus. So before we dive in, I want us to consider one last thing with regards to to introduction. Who is this gospel written to? Well, in a real sense, it's written to us and to everyone who asks the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. But on a more zoomed-in level, the very first people to read this book were first-century Christians in Rome who were actually being persecuted by Nero. Uh, When Nero came to power, he ruled actually pretty well for for the first five years. But in AD 59, we know that that all changed. Uh, He began down a path of cruelty and immorality. Well, in AD 64... There's this great fire that devastates all of Rome. And by the end of the fire, over 80% of the city was destroyed. Uh, Just to kind of put that into perspective, uh, that would be worse than Hurricane Katrina on the city of New Orleans. 80% of the city is destroyed by this fire. Well, many during this time suspected that Nero himself actually started that fire. And so... Rumors begin to swirl. What does Nero do? He blames it on the Christians. Those anti-social, anti-religious fanatics who followed Jesus Christ. They're the ones who did it. Nero used the military that he had, and he rounded up Christians, all of them that he could find. And he begins to torture them violently, publicly, throwing them to the lions, even tarring them and setting them on fire to light up his private gardens. The Christians that were left weren't meeting in buildings like the one we're in this morning on Sundays. If they would have, they would have been the next on the chopping block. So they went to this place called the Catacombs, an underground burial place in Rome. So as we we start the book of Mark, uh, I want you to imagine that setting. You're there with a a small band of Christians, fearing for your lives, wondering if God sees you, wondering if he cares for you. And in walks the pastor of your little church. But he carries with him a new document. You haven't seen this one yet. It's the gospel 
of Mark. You're about to hear God's truth to you in the first reading of the good news. One of the major purposes of the book of Mark is to show that the Messiah's reign and his kingdom are marked not by political and physical triumph, but by suffering and defeat. And that those who follow Jesus will follow in the Messiah's footsteps. But that Jesus has come to liberate his people from their sin and bring them into the new creation. Don't you think that, that these Christians in the catacombs needed to hear that? Don't you think that we need to hear that? Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We have three points today, but the main idea that I want all of us to see is this. Jesus is worthy of our attention. Jesus is worthy of our attention. And so our three points uh, are, are these. Number one, the second Adam. Number two, the second Elijah. And number three, John's message. So point one, the second Adam. Look with me at verse one. John, or Mark starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what other book in the Bible starts with the words, the beginning? Genesis. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Mark starts here because he wants our minds to immediately start thinking creation, garden, Adam and Eve. Notice, while other synoptic Gospels start with, with Jesus' genealogy and birth, or in John, even before the foundations of the earth, Mark's doesn't. We'll see in verse 9 that Mark instead introduces Jesus as a fully grown man. Where else in the Bible do we see this? Genesis, right? The creation of Adam. Mark wants us to remember that the Bible starts with the story of creation, but this gospel begins with a story of recreation. For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. Everything that went sideways in the Garden of Eden is about to be put right. Everywhere the first Adam failed, 
The second Adam succeeded, or he will succeed. See, in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of the world, God created mankind, and he placed them there to have perfect relationship with him. They did for a time, but then they rebelled, and they tried to put themselves on the throne. They tried to be God. This led to God justly cursing them and every human being who would come after them. They were put out of the garden. They were put out of peace and rest and relationship with God. If the story of the Old Testament is paradise lost with Adam being expelled into the wilderness, the New Testament is the story of paradise found. And it begins in the wilderness. The second and last Adam has come. And he's come to bring good news to all who are related to the first Adam. That's all of us, by the way. In answering the question, who is Jesus, Mark is crystal clear. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First, he's the better Adam who's coming to bring recreation. Second, his coming is good news. This word gospel literally means good news. Why is this important? Well, if, if I owe a debt and I can't pay it, and someone's on the way with both the ability to pay it and the willingness to do so, that's good news. We're not talking about a debt collector here. We're talking about a debt payer who came to pay for sin and to offer forgiveness of sin. That's good news. It's not good advice on how to live. It's good news about a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So I want to ask us a couple of questions. Do you think of Jesus that way? When you think of him, do you think good news? If you don't, this gospel is for you. You need to know that, that Jesus' coming is good news. This word gospel also carries with it the connotation of, of a proclamation of victory. Mark wants us to know that, that Jesus' story is good news because he was victorious in what he came to do. Third, Mark introduces this good news carrying better Adam as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. When I was little, I used to think that Christ was his last name. Just like my last name is Cunningham, Jesus' last name must be Christ. But that's not the case. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. This is... The, the anointed one, the one who would restore the kingdom of David, the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that they'd been looking for and longing for and hoping for. And to make things even more crystal clear, Mark finishes with the Son of God. This is no mortal man. He's more than a carpenter. He's divine. 
Mark isn't just going to give us a narrative. He's going to do that, but more, he's going to give us a Christology. While many of the characters in this story are going to struggle with Jesus' identity, and maybe you do today, Mark wants us, as the readers, to know from the beginning that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the very Son of God. If you struggle with that today and you don't quite know who Jesus is, we're glad you're here. This book was written for you. I want to challenge you to to wrestle with the claims that, that both Mark and Jesus are making in this book. Test the claims that Mark makes about Jesus and the claims that Jesus makes about himself. You'll find him to be better than you ever could have imagined. Jesus is the second Adam who came to make things right. Point two, the second Elijah. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So after the the title sentence of the book that we just read, Mark seems to kind of go in somewhat of an odd direction. What's he doing? Well, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Most of your Bibles will correctly have this indented to let you know that it's a quote. Mark actually quotes from three different places, but stylistically, he says, Isaiah the prophet. First, it's important to know that that Mark and his readers, they would have given Isaiah, uh, they would have given him primacy as the most well-known prophet that they were all familiar with. And so in quoting three texts and saying Isaiah the prophet, um, it wouldn't have been odd to them at all. Um, But there's, there's much more to it than just that. Uh, Without going into too much detail, Mark does what's known as a Markan sandwich. So similar to what we saw in the book of Joshua, right? It's like two pieces of bread, but with something in the middle. Um, That's what Mark's doing here. He mentions Isaiah, quotes part of Exodus 23 and Malachi, and then Isaiah 40. There's our sandwich. So Mark wants it as readers and us to interpret the middle, Exodus 23 and Malachi, through the lens of Isaiah 40. Uh, if any of you know John Piper, um, it, it's kind of like listening to, to Piper speak um, and relay some concept or idea when you know like he's, he's quoting or he's, he's putting forth Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Piper says that, that most of the stuff that he says isn't original. It's, it's coming from, from what he's read in Jonathan Edwards. He's constantly distilling Edwards' theology, but into common language. So uh, I may be quoting John Piper, but behind the quote is Edwards. That's what Mark seems to be doing right here with his sandwich quote. He mentions Isaiah, but his readers knew the other quotes as well. So Consider this. At the time of Mark's writing, the Malachi quotation is at least 500 years old. The Isaiah quote, 700 years old. And the Exodus quote, 1,200 years old. 
God isn't in a hurry. But he's faithful. He's fulfilling all of his promises in the perfect moment in history. Also, uh, understand this. If this is true, Jesus isn't just an afterthought to God. He's been planning this for a long, long, long time. Shannon and I, the other night, were were watching a movie um, where it was a couple's 15th anniversary. And the husband in the movie, unfortunately, hadn't bought his wife anything for their anniversary. And so he he rushes at the last minute to this convenience store and he gets her a $50 Amazon card. (laughs) Fail, right? Jesus isn't a last minute gift. God's plan to send him was before, before the foundation of the world. His coming and even his forerunner, John the Baptist, had been prophesied over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Do you see how how meaningful and how thoughtful God's plan of redemption is? But let's consider the context of these old quotations. The reference from the book of Exodus comes from a time in Israel's history where they were in the wilderness. As we learned in the book of Joshua, they were in the wilderness, but on their way to Canaan, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And God promised here in Exodus to send before them an angel to go ahead of them and to bring them into the promised land. Similarly, the Isaiah passage speaks to the people of God when they're captives in Babylon in a wilderness. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then the Malachi quote, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Do you see that? This messenger will simultaneously point the way to the promised land, like the angel in Exodus. He's going to prepare a path for God to lead his people out of captivity and make a way for the Lord to come into his temple people of God were in the wilderness. And this messenger, John the baptizer, was there to herald the coming of the last Adam who would enter the wilderness to bring them back out and into paradise. Oh, and one last piece of information. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is the second to last sentence in all of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament that this passage is referencing, he didn't die. 
Instead, God took him up with a chariot of fire. Here at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is telling us that before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, that Elijah is going to be sent. If you've ever done a Passover Seder, which we're actually going to be, be doing again this year, right before Easter, you know that at a Passover Seder, there's a seat at the end of the table. There's a full plate that gets served. There's cups full and a place setting and an empty seat. Guess who that seat's reserved for? Elijah. Because they were looking for him to come back as a forerunner to the Lord. Now, that word Lord in Malachi is the word Yahweh. It's the word for God. Mark's wanting to draw us to draw this connection with John the Baptist. He's coming in like Elijah to usher in God. Now, back in our text, look at verse 6. Mark 1, verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why is that significant? Well, because in 2 Kings 1.8, this is exactly what Elijah the prophet wore. It'd be like me going out to the golf course, wearing a black Nike hat, a red shirt, an orange and black and white club cover on my driver. You'd think, oh, I get it, he's Tiger Woods. <laughs> my swing wouldn't let you know the same thing. John the Baptist is fulfilling the spirit of Elijah. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, Jesus clearly spells this out, that, yeah, that's who he is. He's fulfilling the spirit of Elijah. And Malachi 4. John the Baptist is preparing the way for God. Over and over and over again, Mark's making it clear to us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the second Adam. And John the Baptist is the second Elijah. But what did the second Elijah do? Look with me back at the text in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He went before Jesus, prepping people for his coming. This is what would happen when kings came to town. Kings don't make nonchalant entrances. They have someone go on before them and announce their coming. They prepare everyone to bow down before the king when he comes. They make sure that when the king comes, everyone's eyes are on him. That's what John the Baptist was born for, to go ahead of and point people to Jesus. The king. Jesus is the second Adam and the coming king. John the Baptist is the second Elijah who prepared the way. But what was at the core of John the Baptist's message? Point three, John's message. Look with me at verses four and five. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, 
and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John's in the wilderness. He's not in the garden, but in the wilderness. Because of sin, God's people are no longer garden people, but wilderness people. And John's proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance. This word repentance means to turn or to change one's mind or heart. Hear this. Repentance was at the core of John's message. You know who gets baptized with a baptism of repentance? Sinners. That's what John was teaching. That sinners needed to turn from their sin to change their heart's direction. He's proclaiming repentance, not healing, not learning, not social reform. Repentance. That's what sinners need. Repentance. If you're you're merely broken, you need healing. If you're uneducated, you need knowledge. Only sinners need to repent. And that's John's message. Jewish people at the time weren't unfamiliar with baptism. Baptism was a purification ritual for people who were unclean. It was a ritual that symbolized a washing away of sin. It was for Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish proselytes. So the shocking thing here isn't that John is teaching baptism. The shocking thing is that he's teaching this baptism of repentance for everyone. It isn't just for the unclean Gentiles, so to speak, who need a baptism of repentance. It's for everyone. The same is true today. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Respectable people. Religious people. Church members, those who have never been to church, everyone. John's message then is the same one that we need today. The king is coming. We must turn from our sin. Look at at the magnitude of this coming king. Verse 7, and he preached, so this is John the Baptist, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, remember, Jesus himself, the one that we started with, the most famous person in history, Jesus himself said this about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So, From the mouth of God himself, John is the greatest man on earth. And he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. What does he mean by that? Well, in those days, everyone wore sandals. And their feet got pretty nasty with all of the dirt and dust and mud in the roads. Even wealthy people wore sandals. They weren't just for surfers and hippies. Well, for, for aristocrats, 
It was beneath their dignity to take off their own sandals because they'd get their hands dirty. So they had their slaves do it. That's what John's saying here. The greatest man on earth is saying, I'm not even worthy to become this coming king's slave. That's the great king that we've all sinned against. That's why John's calling for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But that was only part of his message. The baptism of repentance was the first part. But look at verse 8. This is amazing. Verse 8. John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John had drenched them in water which was external. But he's telling them that this coming king, he would drench them in the Holy Spirit internally. When we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, he permeates every part of us. Do you you see the beauty here in that? The first part of John's message was that humanity had a radical problem. But the second part of his message was that God was providing a radical answer. If you don't know Jesus, you're still in your sin. But the baptism of repentance and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the answer. When he soaks your life, you're transformed. So do you see what John's preparatory message is? It's both law and gospel. God's law condemned them and called for their repentance. But simply repenting wouldn't save them. They needed the gospel and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need this same message today. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you've never turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, We'd like to invite you to do that today. I wonder if you've ever glimpsed just how great Jesus is. Every human being except for one. Jesus, the second Adam. Every single one of us is sinful by nature and by action. We deserve the full wrath of God. We're invited to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus. Everywhere that the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And the Bible teaches us that when we turn from sin and trust in him, that we'll be saved, forgiven, welcomed, not as enemies, but as sons and daughters, as children of God. Repent, believe, allow the Holy Spirit to wash over your heart like water in baptism. Second, If you're here and you're a Christian, I also want to leave you with a challenge as well. You may not wear camel's hair or eat locusts like John the Baptist, but do you point people to Jesus? Do you proclaim the good news? Jesus is the best news in the entire world. Is that news regularly on your lips? 
both the call to repentance and the gospel of grace and forgiveness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago, but he's coming again. We all have a role to play in going before him and heralding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the herald John the Baptist, for the gift of the gospel of Mark. You could have rolled back into earth as a coming conqueror and given us no warning. And you would have been just in doing that. But you didn't do that, Lord. You revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ. You sent a messenger before him to tell us that he was coming. You gave us uh, books like the Gospel of Mark to, to tell us who we are and who you are and how we might turn and be forgiven. Lord, thank you for all of that. We, like John, are not even worthy to untie his sandal. And yet you call us sons and daughters. We're humbled by that. And we're grateful for it. Thank you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.